The data was so profound that the UK decided to stop reporting at the end of March. The data was showing us the infection rates in the vaccinated persons, particularly after the second and third dose, was skyrocketing. Today, I sit down with Dr. Paul Alexander, an expert in evidence-based medicine, research methodology, and clinical epidemiology. He served in the Trump administration as a COVID policy advisor. If you keep vaccinating with these vaccines, you can never ever stop this pandemic. The genetic vaccines for COVID-19 aren't effective against Omicron and newer variants, argues Alexander. Tonight, he breaks down what is known as innate immunity, something different from natural immunity, how it functions, and why our vaccination policies may actually damage the innate immunity that children have. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Before we get started, I have a message from the sponsor of this podcast. Inflation is at its highest in 40 years, and it's eating away at your savings. Interest rates are also on the rise. American Hartford Gold can show you how to protect the value of your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio with physical gold and silver. All it takes to get started is a short phone call, and they'll have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k, and they make it easy. They are the highest rated firm in the country with an a rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait. Call them now. Call 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377. Or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377. Or text AMERICAN to 65532. Dr. Paul Alexander, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you very much, Sue, for having me again. Thank you. There's been a lot of discussion and a lot of controversy, frankly, actually strangely, about the concept of natural immunity in the context of COVID. Okay. Yes. Um, but there's another kind of immunity that's incredibly important, innate immunity, something that's almost never talked about. Yes. So let, let's start there. Uh, you know, what is this? Why is it important? What's happening right now? Well, again, thank you very much, Jan. And um, before I even, um, I want to thank Epoch for the tremendous work they've done over these last two years with COVID, um, the kind of information you guys gave out. I also want to say, you know, to uh, Dr. Zelenko's wife, Renat, express my condolences on everyone else in, in the COVID world research, of research because uh, we built on Dr. Zelenko with his Zelenko protocol for early treatment, and um, he's a giant that will be missed. To answer that question first, I want to set the landscape that um, I'm in a lot of discussion, and uh, all of us really, Dr. Harvey Reich, Dr. McCullough, um, Dr. Tenenbaum, we deal with uh, Dr. Van den Bosch daily about the immunology, the virology, the vaccinology, and he is a global expert. What I've come to understand, which I think is critical, is those of us today, particularly the vaccine manufacturers and CDC, NIH, FDA, they are making a mistake when they deal with this virus today by disregarding the, the interplay and the ecosystem between the virus and the host. And the, the challenge, and, and Goethe actually eloquently explains this, for you to end a pandemic, you need to get to herd immunity. And for you to get to herd immunity, 
you need to cut the chain of transmission. If the chain of transmission is not cut, you will never ever get to population level herd immunity. And um, to do that, um, you need to have sterilizing immunity. You must bring a vaccine that sterilizes the virus. By that we mean that it prevents infection in the host, it prevents replication, and it prevents transmission. Transmission is key. So right now, this vaccine produces non-neutralizing, non-sterilizing antibodies. So what does that mean? That means that it does not stop transmission. It does not eliminate the virus. So in other words, right now, by vaccinating with this particular, uh, the mRNA vaccines, etc., based on the initial Wuhan strain of the virus, March, April 2020, that's what's inside that vaccine. But that's, that's a year now that it's gone. We have been, we've gone through Delta, we've gone through all of the subvariants of Omicron so far. Now we're up to BA4, BA5. In other words, the vaccinal antibodies, the antibodies induced by the vaccine, does not hit the Omicron spike. And that is why you have viral immune escape. And that is why persons who are vaccinated are becoming infected. More so, we understand now, with some research by Yahi et al. and others, that um, it's not only that the non-neutralizing antibodies bind to the spike, that there's a binding between those two. The problem is that in that binding, in its failure to neutralize, the virus is actually becoming more infectious and infecting the vaccinated person. And that is what the data began to emerge. There was data in, um, I think, around July, August of 2021, out of Barnes Stable, Massachusetts, where a bunch of persons, about 400 people who were vaccinated, double vaccinated, Delta was predominant at that point, about 75 to 80% became infected. And it was that particular event that prompted uh, the director of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, to come to the microphone and tell persons who were double vaccinated to put on a mask because they began to realize that the vaccinated person was getting infected and actually prone to transmit. At that same time, there was a very potent study by Chow et al. out of Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. That, sit, that study looked at some um, vaccinated nurses, double vaccinated, who were part of a Delta outbreak. And um, those nurses became infected. They were locked down but they became infected in that institution. They transmitted to each other. And uh, what we found was that um, the amount of viral load in their nasopharyngeal passage was about 251 times uh, that of uh, another particular variant um, uh, earlier in the pandemic. It, so it, it demonstrated to us that double vaccinated persons were at risk of being infected were at risk of harboring massive pathogen in the nasopharyngeal passage, the oral cavity, as well as transmitting. And that study, plus there was one by Shitrit in Israel and one by Hatimaki out of Finland. Similar nosocomial outbreaks showed that vaccinated nurses were becoming infected. What was alarming too is they were full PPE. 
They had the masks, the gowns, the shields, everything. Yet, they transmitted. So those studies showed us a host of things, which is that there was really no difference between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated person. And that began to open our eyes that something was wrong. Something was wrong in, um, in uh, the statement by the CDC and the NIH that uh, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And we were, when we looked at the data out of the UK, we looked at the data out of Scotland, we began to realize, no, it's not a pandemic of the unvaccinated. In fact, there actually was no difference between the vaccinated and unvaccinated from those COVID injections. And I'm just going to jump in, but there was there was some sort of effect on adverse uh, outcomes, like on mortality and, and severe infection and things like that still at that time. Is that right? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that was what was reported. And um, the reality is we were getting some uh, indications of that, particularly from nursing homes, elderly at-risk persons. The death rate began to, to, to decline. But there's a lot of controversy over that to Jan, simply because, remember, these vaccines, when they were developed by the, um, Pfizer, Moderna, etc., they were never designed to deal with death or hospitalization or ICU or severe illness, severe symptoms, moderate. They were really, um, they only dealt with reducing um, mild symptoms of COVID. And that has always been our contention that that when people came to the microphone, especially CDC people or NIH people or, or, or um, FDA and said and say, well, uh, the, co the vaccine is safe and effective. We always looked at each other and we said, well, okay, well, where's the data to show what you are saying? Because the, the trials never showed that. And that's the other thing. The trials were, were built around the reduction in mild COVID symptoms. And that's what the public didn't understand. And, and whenever they mentioned the efficacy, the, the, the vaccine is efficacious. Well, efficacious on what? Um, that you reduced mild COVID symptoms, you reduced my cough, you reduced, what, seven, seven coughs, three coughs. That is not what was important to a person in the population. I wanted to know, does this vaccine uh, reduce my risk of death? reduce my risk of hospitalization, et cetera, severe outcomes. And um, the reality about it is that um, today we have a situation where, and I think it could segue into the situation with the innate immunity, uh, we have a situation today where the vaccine is, the Omicron variant, subvariant is BA5, BA4, BA5, highly infectious. The vaccinated person is getting infected. And again, as, as I was trying to explain earlier, there is research that shows us that the mechanism by the way that is happening is that the vaccinal antibodies, when you get vaccinated, binds to the spike protein, which is the target antigen. But in that binding, uh, we have a situation uh, it's termed uh, ADEI, antibody-dependent enhancement of infection, which is that the, the host or the vaccinated person is more prone to become infected, and that's what we are seeing. When we look at the UK data, we look at the Scottish data. I mean, the data was so profound that the UK decided to stop reporting at the end of March and Scotland, I believe in April, because the data was showing us, um, it was very, very uh, troubling that 
the infection rates in the vaccinated persons, particularly after the second and third dose, was skyrocketing. And it is a problem. And people like Goethe have argued that, um, that in time, there is the risk that the vaccine right now appears to provide, it causes infection in the vaccinated, but it seems to protect against severe illness in the lower lung. Um, some experts are arguing now that um, that that benefit that we think or that um, gift uh, would soon be overcome and that we would be facing a situation where we would have potentially a very infectious variant emerge that is also very virulent, uh, lethal and cause a lot of severe illness and death. And Strangely enough, all of a sudden, there are some countries, I've been reading some reports already, that um, doctors are beginning to report in various nations that um, the persons who are becoming infected right now are showing up with severe, more severe symptoms. So it's beginning to make us wonder what has happened here, and is this what Gert van den Bosch had said materializing? And um, so, so what's the bottom line? I want to get into the innate, but the bottom line is that these vaccines are not needed. Um, we had early drug treatment. We knew about uh, quickly about vitamin D, the benefits in dramatically reducing mortality. We knew about uh, all of the steps that we could take in normal epidemiological outbreak uh, responses pandemic responses even, that once we strongly protected the elderly and the vulnerable in our society properly, um, we could allow the rest of society, the low risk in the society, to live largely normal lives. And that, uh, you know, as part of their normal daily living, I mean, it caused a lot of angst to a lot of people, um, to, to, to the writers of the Great Barrington, to myself, Basically, we were saying that you'd allow people to live, the healthy people, to live normal lives, which is how, what we've always done, and that they would be exposed naturally and harmlessly, not deliberately, just as part of their normal lives, and they would be exposed, those who become infected, their immune systems would deal with it, they would develop immune, an immunity, immune response, they would recover, and it is their immune response that will be used to protect the vulnerable. You bring everybody back together again in the future. So you strongly find a way to keep the vulnerable away as much as you can. And I'm not talking about what we meant was to lock people away in a room somewhere in a dungeon. You know, you make reasonable decisions in your private homes or even in the nursing homes, etc., and you protect them. You allow the healthy and the well in society to be the ones to confront the pathogen and develop that robust immune response that will protect them in the future. And we go on. But that's not what we did. We did, we actually did it upside down and we failed to protect the vulnerable while we locked down the healthy. And it's been two, two and a half years. And um, when we look at all of the research today, Jan, we can see that in, in every single location in the world, there is no location, there's no setting, no country where anyone can point to any COVID lockdown that was successful in any measure to curb transmission or reduce deaths. None. And Herbie et al., Johns Hopkins wrote 
a review a couple months ago. Basically, we had already published in AIER. And I had published in Brownstone where we looked at all of the evidence showing that all of the lockdowns failed, all of them. And Herbie et al. did the same. Ostensibly in Australia and New Zealand, they did succeed in curbing transmission. Okay, so let's say this room that we're in, this building, so this room, let's say we are here and we get word that there's a serious pathogen now that's come into this area in South Side. So we all run around quickly, we seal the windows, we close the doors and we say, you know what, we can't do anything, we're not going outside, we don't want it to come in, so we're going to lock down. We lock ourselves down in here. Okay, for how long? Because we could conceivably keep that pathogen out of this room and none of us in the room will get infected. But for how long? Because at some point, you're going to have to emerge. And depending on how long you lock this room down for, you're going to cause a lot of disaster in your life. You might not have a family and nothing to emerge to after. So it's not what you, theoretically, you could lock a country down. But really, you can't. Who could really lock a country that has borders down? But they have places that have tried, Australia, New Zealand, China. But look at what is happening. Every time they try to open up, the cases spike and they lock back down. And they're suffering their population, suffering them. People jump out of their buildings. People committed suicide in America, okay, because of the lockdowns, business owners, because they closed their business and they gave up. They, we have children, many children across America ended their lives, they committed suicides because of the school closures and the lockdowns. So there is a cost, and that's the cost we're talking about. Yes, you could do it. You could, you could put tape on everything on tape, but you have no economy to emerge to. You destroyed your society, the social fabric. People take drastic steps. They can't stay in that situation too long. But importantly though, when we put pressure on the pathogen, remember, the pathogen is like, I wouldn't say it's a living entity, the virus, because really a virus is a clump of genetic material packaged in viral envelope, uh, etc., the membrane, protein, etc., around it, nucleocapsid, etc. But it wants to reproduce, right? It has to do things to go forward. It wants to spread its genetic material. That's its principal game. And it does that by infecting me, using my cellular me metabolic machinery to replicate itself. So if I put pressure on it by trying to prevent it from doing that, it will respond to that pressure. It will respond to the, to the steps that you are taking to, to prevent it. And it evolves. And we, we've, we underestimated the evolutionary capacity of this virus to evolve and to adapt to the pressures that we place on it. Example, the vaccine, was an, at present, the, the vaccinal antibodies are non-neutralizing. That means it does not eliminate the virus, it doesn't stop infection. But you're putting pressure on the virus. It's almost like you're poking it, you're pushing it, but you can't destroy it. Had Moderna and Pfizer brought a vaccine that was sterilizing, that eliminated the virus, we would not be having these discussions. This, this whole pandemic would have been done. 
February of 2021, the minute they started with those vaccines, because they brought a proper vaccine that totally eliminated the virus. But it does not. They brought a vaccine out of the gate that was suboptimal. And quickly, with the mutations and the evolution of the virus, we had a situation where the content of the vaccine was not matching the virus. And the more you vaccinated, you see, they, they, they didn't understand vaccinated inside a pandemic is very different to vaccinating outside of a pandemic. Because inside of a pandemic, you are confronted with the infectious pressure from the pathogen. The pathogen is constantly trying to infect the population. So that pressure from the pathogen on the population is never ending. But the vaccine that you administered is suboptimal. It does not neutralize this virus. Moreover, the vaccinal antibodies need about two to three weeks after the shot to develop properly and to, be, to gain its functional capacity. So during that two to three week period, you have people who are vaccinated within a pandemic with virus circulating. They have no protection. And we know also that the immune system almost falls flat immediately post-vaccine for about two weeks whilst the immune system builds and develops. So you have a situation where you have virus pressing down on the population while the immune response is mounting, but the mounting immune response is suboptimal and it is not enough to eliminate the virus. It's enough to just keep poking it, pushing it, you're pressuring it. Mm. In this, this, this virus, in the environment, billions and trillions of copies, they are hardier, fitter, more infectious variants. Those stronger variants are the ones that are responding to this suboptimal pressure. Remember, it's not a sterilizing vaccine. It's a non-neutralizing, non-sterilizing vaccine. The manufacturers told us this, CDC told us this, it doesn't stop transmission. So the strongest variants will overcome that suboptimal pressure and infect you, infect the population. But it's beyond that. We found out now that the vaccinal antibodies actually bind to the viruses, to the spike antigen. And in the binding, that union it causes the virus to be more infectious. The virus itself is more infectious now to that person is going to infect, the vaccinated, and they are heavily infected, heavily infected, and that's the problem. The content of the vaccine is, was, was, was built, was geared to the Wuhan strain of COVID. So your body, your cells will build antibodies to the Wuhan strain of the virus. But what is circulating predominantly is Omicron with a multitude of mutations on the spike, I believe 15 or 20. So the vaccinal antibody cannot hit that Omicron spike. It cannot even recognize it. And that is the problem. In other words, if you keep vaccinating with these vaccines, 
You can never ever stop this pandemic. This pandemic can go on for 100 years. It will never end. And, and what we're seeing is it's infectious variant after infectious variant, more infectious each iteration that's coming is more infectious. So it's a terrible situation. Okay, so you talked about these hardy variants mm -hmm. that are basically the ones that can overcome this sort of suboptimal mm -hmm. immune response, yeah. right? Immune pressure. And, and so this is what, this is basically what drives the- More infectious. Right, so the part that I think, you know, my, I would like to understand better here is why why, how does it actually happen that well, it becomes more infectious? Okay, well, 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 first of all, in the environment, there's so much virus. The variants in the environment, not just from me, from everybody else. Everybody is generating variants. In those variants, the one that is the, how should I say, the predominant one, will become the one that's of the greatest number then and the hardiest and the fittest. Those that could overcome the suboptimal and actually get around it and infect the vaccinated person, those have demonstrated the ability, well, they are hardier. They have infected, the va they, they, they are totally resistant now to the antibodies. They resist the antibodies completely. Those are selected because they are the, the hardiest and the predominant one. Yeah will be selected now to move forward. They are going to become the new dominant variant. Mm -hmm. So we had that in Omicron, and now we've seen every clade or, or sub-variant, we call it, to happening. So what you're asking to is, well, what the research is showing is that um, uh, the, the vaccinal antibodies, the existing vaccinal antibodies, normally, when there is the binding that takes place, the antibodies, by seeing it in a, just a 50,000 foot level, the, the way this operates is the antibody and the, the um, receptor binding domain on the spike. There's a union between the two. Because the spike normally will interact with the ACE2 receptor that sits on the surface of the cells to infect you. But the antibody binds to that binding domain. So it blocks it. So now the spike, that, that portion that normally um, uh, meets up with the ACE2 receptor to infect the cell, that site is, is blocked mm -hmm. by the antibody. Mm -hmm. So now the spike cannot interact with the ACE2 and infect the cell so that the viral contents could get inside of the cell and you become infected. So that, that's the optimal situation. That's but the that's, optimal situation. But that's, not, but that's not what's happening. That's not what's happening because what is happening right now is, and we could actually segue to innate, what is happening is when the antibodies, the vaccinal antibodies after you got your vaccine, when it, let's say, interacts with the binding domain on the spike, you would think at that point that it would prevent the the, the um, infection at that point of the virus. But what we are seeing is a condition called antibody-dependent enhancement of infection. What it is doing, research by Yahi et al, et cetera, is showing us that the virus itself becomes much more infectious. The antibodies is increasing the enhanced ability of this virus now to infect the host, and it causes the host to be infected. The exact mechanism as to how that is happening, 
the, I, they are working that out from because the, the research right now we are looking is has been largely in vitro, but in the in vitro modeling it's showing us what is happening because we are seeing all of a sudden all of these vaccinated people are becoming infected, and it should not be happening. So let's jump to you. You mentioned there's a connection to innate immunity. What is innate immunity? And I actually know that that everything you've talked about fits in. Will, will, will help us understand. I, I'm speaking with my background training in evidence-based medicine, epidemiology, etc. I'm, I'm not a classic immunologist or virologist, etc. But I think because of COVID in the last two, two and a half years, and the people that I work with now become very good friends, but colleagues at a technical level, Van den Bosch, Dr. Yeden, McCullough, Rich, etc. Howard Tenenbaum, all these people. So normally, um, what you hear about in the news and what we wrote so voraciously about was natural immunity and um, natural acquired adaptive immunity. But there's a compartment of the immune system that uh, is called the innate immunity. And uh, innate because of the fact it's what in a rudimentary way you come with. And um, I would have to then pivot straight to, to young people, infants, children, young persons, teenagers, etc. So the innate immune system is the first line of defense. And it is comprised of innate antibodies, just like uh, uh, the antibodies in natural immunity. Um, uh, those are made by, those are churned out by the B cell, memory B cells. The innate antibodies are, are uh, induced by the B1 cells of the innate immune system. Um, so it's comprised of the innate antibodies and what we also call the innate NK cells, natural killer cells. Their name is basically what they do. They kill any infected cell, any foreign cell inside the body. Um, there are also other compartments, other cellular um, components. But these two are very critical. And from a basic point of view, the innate immune system is, you can say it's the surface of our skin, because the surface of our skin have um, microbes, etc., that play a role in defense of us. Uh, the, the, the surface of our eyes, you know, the watery layer of our eyes. And the principal innate um, compartment that we tend to refer to always is, is the mucosal compartment. And the mucosa is that slimy layer that lines your nostrils all the way to the back of your throat, your pharynx, all the way down, straight down, and also in the oral cavity, straight down the esophagus to the stomach. Those, the, the lining is what we call the mucosal lining. And that lining underneath it has mucosal cells. Mm. In there, there's an immune response to take place, principally in our nostrils. So for example, with the COVID virus, the, the virus lands first in your nostrils, and it lands there. And estimates that it hangs out for about two to three days. During that time, um, you have an immunological response, your innate immune system begins a response at that point, so much so that experts like Dr. Bagdi had said very early on that um, what was needed here was a nasal vaccine 
mm. not an intramuscular vaccine that, de that delivered an immunological response systemically in the bloodstream because the, 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 the virus is in the nostril and um, it has to progress down from the upper respiratory tract down into the lower respiratory tract deep inside the lung before it can even get into the bloodstream and then in to infect tissue etc so um, the immune response is at the level of the mucosa and when children are born they have their maternal antibodies that gets passed on from the mother to child um, those go away rather quickly and the children have a window of opportunity to train the innate immune system properly and principally they're trying to train the innate antibodies and innate NK cells and they get that training those cells of the, the innate immune system get training by the exposure to pathogen and the problem is that children are what we call antigenically naive they don't come with prior exposure they don't have the years of life that they have yet been exposed to a host of pathogen in the environment and therefore developed immunological memory to them responded to it recovered it whatever so they need something to, to be able to cope with the environment and our god who whatever your god something children come with this innate immune system it's their first line of defense for young people children infants etc that is critical and that is why young people normally, young children, do so well against pathogen and they survive in the environment, not having copious number of years of existence. They have not had exposure to a bunch of stuff, to pathogen, yet they bump up against these things in the environment and they do well. And the innate immune system is not, it does not have a memory, mm. like the acquired adaptive immune system. It is almost like a surveillance, like a Praetorian guard that's always there looking on, dealing with anything that comes. As it comes, it will deal with it and vanquish it. So it does not need a memory. Very potent, and I'm trying to help explain it to parents too, that the reality is that the, the innate antibodies are what we call low affinity, very potent, broadly effective, low affinity, they don't need to be focused on any particular pathogen. They can deal with anything that comes their way. The challenge here is that the vaccinal antibodies are what we call high specificity, high affinity to the target antigen, which is the spike. The innate antibodies have low affinity. And the concern is that the benefit of the innate immune system in children to the immunological landscape and why the training of the antibodies is so key is because in that period of time in young childhood, once the, the innate immune antibodies and the innate immune system can be trained and you allow it to be trained, um, it functions, it has several roles, which is one, um, in terms of COVID, when a child, a healthy child, confronts COVID, their innate antibodies, if they are healthy, a healthy child, will eliminate the virus and it will sterilize it. It will prevent infection. It will prevent replication and transmission. And a child, 
probably will be what we call asymptomatic. You would never even know that they uh, bumped up against COVID because the innate antibodies dealt with it. And um, um, it is that potent. Uh, some children um, might be a little older and um, you may find some children might have little symptoms. They may have a little couple hours. They say they may say their stomach isn't feeling well. May run a temperature. May say I don't feel like going to school today. You know what I mean? And then after that, they recover. The innate immune system is doing its job functionally. It also, with that training, by allowing it to be trained that way, every time that child is exposed, as they're getting older, to to that pathogen. The, the innate immune system will now would, would have benefited from the training and they would vanquish it readily and easily. And there's also a portion of this where the innate immune system, once properly trained, plays a role in um, helping uh, the immune, your immune system differentiate self from non-self. Mm. So that properly trained, the innate immune system will know what belongs to you, what does not belong to you. Because if your innate immune system is not trained, and if the system goes sideways, you could have devastating autoimmune disease, and the immune system attacks you. So it is absolutely critical that the innate immune system, and particularly the innate antibodies, very early on in childhood, be allowed this training. And what Goot has theorized, and we are working with right now, is that because the vaccinal antibodies are highly specific to the target antigen, the spike, the vaccinal antibodies would bind to the spike antigen first, block the innate antibodies from its functional capacity, which is binding. Remember. It's almost a ridiculous situation where you have functional antibodies in the innate antibodies that can bind and neutralize the virus and eliminate it in children. But if you vaccinated them, the vaccinal antibodies would target that spike more readily than the innate bind and block the innate from binding. So you have vaccinal antibodies that are worthless. They do not neutralize the virus. We know that they're non-neutralizing. Uh, Omicron has largely resisted the antibodies now, the vaccinal antibodies. So you have vaccinal antibodies that are worthless blocking the innate antibodies which are fully functional and can neutralize the virus and eliminate it. So then you would have children being unable to eliminate the virus and they now will become infected. So let me get this straight. Um, for very young children, mm -hmm. vaccinating them, basically you're saying causes the opposite response to what you want. You think you're protecting them, but actually you're making them more vulnerable. Is that what you're saying? Yes, with these COVID vaccines. The key here, why we are so disturbed by what has happened is because remember, you have the FDA took a submission from Pfizer and Moderna to approve these vaccines in children as young as six months old to four years or five years old, besides the ones from, 
from 6 to 11 and then 12 to 17, etc. But let's focus on these young kids. And the CDC just rubber stamped it. We just went through that, I think, the third week of, um, third or fourth week of, of uh, June, where they had their meetings. Now, from a purist point of view, and a research methodologist and a biostatistician, statistician, epidemiologist, evidence-based medicine person I am, when you look at tables 19 and 20 in the submission, the June 15th submission from, that the FDA looked at in their decision making, tables 19 and 20 are very instructive because even to the untrained viewer, what do you see? You see the CDC and the FDA making decisions on a, a very small sample size, as little as 10 children in some instances. Very, very small. They started off with about 4,500 children. Somewhere along the line, Pfizer and Moderna displaced about 3,000. And then the numbers even dropped down to a couple hundred. And we have no full accounting as to what happened to those children and why they were not included in the study and the analysis. We have small number of events. We have like two events in one arm of the trial, one event in the other. We know from a from a scientific point of view, a methodological point of view, that that is a red flag for high risk of overestimating the treatment effect. We don't make policy decisions or any kind of decision on two events or three events in a study, two in one arm, one in the other. We look at the 95% confidence intervals, and we see they run from China on one side back to California on the other side of the world because it's so broad. Um, there's so much uncertainty in terms of whether it's beneficial or not. And um, we found when you read the, the submission, you see that at some point they reported that children who got multiple infections of COVID were vaccinated. But that's a red flag. We, we also read that um, the children who got the most severe adverse events were vaccinated. So, it boggles the mind, it stretches the imagination as to how they could have gone on and, and approved these vaccines in little children. And so we have the data to show that there is no data that FDA and CDC looked at, submitted from Pfizer and Moderna, that should tell any sound person that they should have gotten approval, any EAU, any approval for these vaccines in children six months to four years old. The data is just not there. I will challenge anyone at CDC and anyone at FDA to, to debate me, just me, or Dr. Reich or Dr. McCullough. Just, just explain to us how you could look at tables 19 and 20 in that June 16, 2022 submission that you had in front of you, that you made a decision to vaccinate our children. So you're not even looking at the science. What we are saying is this. The innate immune system has a window of opportunity to be trained. And in children, children have that window of opportunity, in very young children, soon after their maternal antibodies fade, because that doesn't last forever. They need to train the innate immune system. It is their first line, it is my first line. We had our innate immune system trained when we were young, but today, Children are confronted with this COVID vaccine. Now we are pushing, we just discussed, 
we are trying to tell parents, look, this is a risk management decision you must make that they are not making for you. And the risk management decision is this. CDC-owned data says children have a near statistical zero risk of severe outcome or death, severe illness or death from COVID. That is data that existed. We looked at all of the data in Germany. For the entire pandemic, no healthy young child died of COVID. None, zero. We looked at the data in Sweden. No healthy young child throughout the pandemic has died of COVID. Marty McCary, Dr. Marty McCary, Johns Hopkins, his team looked at all of the deaths that CDC said pegged to COVID with a child. There's roughly 400 in America since pandemic, young children, since the pandemic began, 400. They have reported that there is not one healthy child. And I need to say it again slowly. We have no evidence in the United States of America of not one healthy child that was infected with COVID and died from COVID. And that's a fact and that's the data. I challenge anyone to show us any alternative data. I am not saying, listen, the death of a child is the most devastating, tragic event ever. You could never recover as a parent for far less the dead child. But the reality about it is that the children that have died, that CDC has said died with a, with a diagnosis of COVID connected to them, when we look at the, the data dedicatedly, these children were not well children. They, were, they, they had a lot of illness. Morbid obesity has emerged as a superloaded risk factor for severe outcomes in COVID, regardless of age. That's the one risk factor that set age aside. Age has remained the principal risk factor for COVID. We know that the principal risk persons who died were very elderly people over the age of 80. That's a fact. Then when you add into comorbidities, that brought the age down. We had younger persons below 80 who died because they were unwell. They had two to three underlying medical conditions. But, but morbid obesity strips age away. We, it, age falls apart from the models because obesity on its own is a potent, potent problem. Um, wh what am I saying? I'm saying that, that, that children, healthy children, left on their own because of their almost zero risk of severe outcome or death from COVID, do not need these COVID injections. They never did need these COVID injections. But now we've gone a step further. We are actually trying to explain to parents that there is an innate immune compartment of your immune system that we all have, but it needs initially to be educated and trained. It gets that by the innate antibodies being exposed to pathogen and allowed to train. So much so, we are looking at the data in Africa today and we are saying Africa is winning. Why? because a lot of the young people and children were not vaccinated. And I know this because I look at the data every day. I could see the vaccination rate by country. And the African countries have almost zero vaccine rates. They've not vaccinated their populations. What does that mean? That means that the young children and young people have benefited. Their innate immune system has benefited from the training 
that it normally needs. So when Omicron bear down on Africa, these children and young people had their innate immune antibodies and innate immune system trained. So it was able to deal with Omicron and provide the type of immunity and eliminate the virus. Because if we damage the innate immune system in children, we are taking the most potent part of the immunological response from off the battlefield. And that's what I think we made a mistake. Van den Bosch, myself, McCall, all of us. Uh, you know, on the one hand, we are fighting this monolith of, of the devastating COVID response with the catastrophe of the lockdowns and then the failure to use early treatments. We were fighting that, developing the algorithm, trying to educate people on the school closures were causing suicides in children, dealing with natural immunity. You know I wrote that paper in Brownstone. It's 154 pieces of evidence now. It's used by the House and the Congress of the United States informally to inform them. We should have educated the public on innate immunity because, because the innate immune compartment is really the first line and it's critical in children. And now we are trying to tell the public, Gerd van den Bosch, Dr. van den Bosch is the global leader. I would say I'm a, I'm a disciple of his, but I'm trying to explain it how I understand it. We are arguing that your child with a functional innate immune system is normally, normally, their immune system is able to cope with not just COVID, SARS-CoV-2 virus. It copes with all viruses that come its way. It copes with common cold, coronaviruses, influenza, RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, CMV, Epstein-Barr, hepatitis, all of the pathogen, bacterial and fungal infections also. So we have a situation where if you subvert their innate immune system, you are going to take healthy children. It's almost like if Johnny was healthy over here with his innate immune system, he's going through life. Johnny might be seven or eight or nine. And his immune system, his innate immune system is being trained and developed. Johnny is going to school. His innate antibodies are being boosted and primed and activated and and worked up and taxed and tuned daily because Johnny is going to school. Johnny is confronting a pathogenic environment and it's doing its thing. It's developing, it's being educated, it's being trained. Now you're trying to tell me that based on suboptimal, dysfunctional, uh, corrupted data submitted by Pfizer and Moderna to CDC and the FDA, rubber stamped an approval based on two or three events in a, in a study based on a sample size of 10, based on confidence interval that shows ineffectiveness, you are going to vaccinate my child Johnny with a vaccine that runs the risk of subverting Johnny's functional innate immune system that's been working fine and Johnny has no problem. Now you're going to subvert it. You're going to put my Johnny susceptible to a host of pathogen, a wide range of pathogen that Johnny would have no problem with, and that's the argument. Why do you think that the, it's the entire innate immune system that's subverted here, not just, say, versus COVID, just against those, that, that binding site in particular? Or is this, or is this just a possibility, uh, and given that the normal risk 
is is very very low as you've outlined extensively it just doesn't make sense to take the risk well you mean from what point of view i mean in the in the presence of the vaccinal antibodies and the innate immune system cannot the innate antibodies cannot be trained it 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 cannot function it loses its functional capacity mm. to function and there's no training not even because it's a very important question, and I'll answer it this way. Again, I don't pretend to be Dr. Gert van den Bosch. A lot of these viruses, influenza, RSV virus, all the coronaviruses, they share sugars on their surface called glycans. The, the antibodies, our immune system respond to patterns, not necessarily one spike on the SARS virus. It's the patterns around the proteins. It, it, it looks at all of the glycans and sugars on the surface. And a lot of them share similar patterns on their surface. So that immune response is not just to the SARS-CoV-2. The trained innate immune response is to a broad range of pathogen. So you are subverting a potent innate. In other words, you are going to take children and put them vulnerable to a broad range of pathogens, so much so that we are saying that right now we have the situation where WHO has placed uh, avian influenza as, I think, a virus of concern. They've not declared it at a higher level yet, but they said it's on the radar. It's expanding right now, a, a form of uh, uh, avian flu. You're gonna, children are going to become susceptible to avian flu with an untrained innate immune system. Monkeypox. Monkeypox right now is, is relegated and the foci of infection is a particular high-risk group in the society. Um, we have a lot of reservations as to how the CDC and WHO have reacted to it, have been flat-footed in providing the proper guidance to the high-risk group as to how to cut the chain of transmission. It is always to cut the chain of transmission. If you do not cut the chain of transmission, you cannot get to eliminate that pathogen and get to what we call herd immunity. So that's when you look at the epi curve, the wave, you see the slope up, the peak, and the downward, and it comes all the way back down to baseline. Once you see it come back down to baseline, that's where herd immunity, herd immunity has happened there. What, what we're actually seeing right now, because of these vaccines, these non-sterilizing vaccines, particularly in the area of Omicron, we are seeing that when the curve comes on the downward slope, we go quickly back into another wave, and the subsequent peak is higher, and the subsequent peaks keep going up higher. That's what we're seeing. And we're seeing that the peaks are getting, the curves are getting closer. So they're getting, they're happening faster, and they're not coming back down to baseline. What does that tell us? That tells us something very alarming. It tells us that there's a massive amount of infection after every wave remaining in the environment. So you are not getting to herd immunity. And it is because of these vaccines. The vaccines are making the vaccinated infected, period. That is what the evidence now shows us. Let me stop you for one sec, because that's a very, obviously a very contentious statement, okay. right? You're basically saying that the vaccines are driving infection. It is. And so, so where's, what is the evidence? Well, we have research, we have published papers that point to this already, Yahi et al. as one. Um, uh, we have the actual data. We have data 
that was collected at a granular level from the United Kingdom. Every week, week over week, they would, they would provide us the data. And we got this for almost a year. And we were showing the world that, look, all of a sudden, the vaccinated, the double, and then the triple vaccinated first booster, all of a sudden were getting more infected than the unvaccinated. So we are saying something is wrong. The vaccine is doing something. UK stopped the data. They decided they're not going to publish it anymore with no proper explanation. Scotland did the same thing. Week after week, we were suing. We said, look at the data. We, act, we have the graphs still. They can't take it away. We've saved them as PDF files. We have all of the data. And uh, this happened, it is happening in Israel, it's happening in Denmark, all of the countries, all of the Nordic nations. If, when the vaccines were rolled out in February, March of 2020, the content of the vaccine was based on the Wuhan legacy strain of COVID. And that's where the concept of original antigenic sin comes in too, that I will remind people. And the original antigenic sin is a very simple, elegant concept. It says that the initial priming, the initial exposure uh, or imprinting prejudices the immune response lifelong so that whatever was the initial exposure the immune system had, whether it was via natural exposure to the infection or via vaccine, that immunological response is what will be recalled Every time that immune system, that person, that host, confronts pathogen in the environment. So now you are confronting Omicron. Your immune system is recalling Wuhan antibodies. The recall is to Wuhan. That's what is pulled up. But Wuhan antibodies cannot recognize the Omicron spike, it can't, it can't hit it. It misses it complete, so it cannot neutralize. When you're talking about these antibodies, you're talking about vaccine antibodies, but you know, to the casual observer, to the casual listener right now, they'll, they'll say to themselves, well, you know, let's say someone was infe naturally infected with an early variant like Wuhan or Delta or something like that. So we have the same problem, don't we? Because they're primed for uh, uh, Delta or the Wuhan strain? Why is natural immunity different in this case than vaccine immunity? Why is this natural immunity so much more effective, which is what the data says? Is it because the, the, the natural immunity is for the entirety of the virus, whereas the, the vaccine is purely for the spike? Or, or how does that work? Exactly. You just answered it. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, again, it's very simple. And I know the general public uh, as in tuned over these last two years, and I've understood this even more than the scientific experts at CDC because their decision-making is, it, it makes no sense what they're doing. Uh, the decisions that they're making at FDA and CDC, actually, in my opinion, is actually causing harm to the public. And what you just said is exactly correct. The vaccine provokes an immune response to one target on the virus the spike protein, which is what you see, those, those spicules that stick out on the surface of the, of the, the viral ball outside. Um, but the virus is made up of about 28 to 30 different proteins. And on the surface area, there's a membrane protein, the envelope protein. There, inside of the virus, there's what we call a 
a very conserved protein called the nucleocapsid protein that regardless of the iterations of the virus, it is conserved, there's no change. The spike though is the most mutable part of the virus. So it makes us question, why would they give the target for the immune response the most mutable part of this virus, where the spike protein mutates conti continuously. So why did they not make the target, the entire virus, the, the ball of the virus, or other conserved parts of the virus, and not the spike? So to answer it the way you just said, you answered it, which is that the vaccine will only see the spike, the antibodies, natural immunity, builds an immunological response and imprinting to the entire viral ball, including the spike. So the spike might change, but the other 20-something odd proteins on surface um, antigens, surface molecules, the immune, the natural immune system can, can, can recognize it. And from that point of view, it's, it's, it's almost like if my sister decided that she was going to uh, do uh, some sort of facial adjustment and she was going to do a nose, uh, adjust her nose. Let's say do a nose job. And we have natural immunity versus vaccinal immunity. And my sister did a nose job. She changed her nose, right? Vaccinal immunity only knows one thing on my sister, which is her nose. That's a spike. So when my sister comes back to, to see me, and let's say I, were natural, I, was, I was vaccinal immunity, I wouldn't recognize her because she changed her nose. That's the only thing I use to understand that this was my sister. Natural immunity looks at my sister's nose her height, her weight, the shape of her eyes, her ears, the clothing she wears, her skin color, hair length, etc. So when she comes back around, natural immunity will look at her and say, hmm, that nose looks a little different now, but everything else is the same, so this still is your sister. That is natural immunity versus vaccine immunity. You're basically arguing that the continued use of vaccines, these genetic vaccines at this time, especially for young people in, insofar as that's being done, is actually driving infection and driving the emergence of new variants, mm -hmm. which you know could be even more problematic like this BA5, we're getting initial information that it's, yes. it's more severe disease. Are you saying that vaccination should be stopped for this reason? What, what, is, what, is, what are you advocating for here in the end? They are talking about you know what, it's almost now that Pfizer and Moderna have admitted failure because now they have come out and stated last day or so that they are going back to the lab and try to bring out in the fall or winter a bivalent vaccine that is comprised now of two spikes, the Wuhan spike and the present Omicron spike, BA4, BA5 subvariants. Well, we argue that well, that is as ridiculous as the situation that we're in. By the time they bring that out, we would have new variants. So we will be ending up again back to ground zero, where we'll be vaccinating into a pandemic a second time with vaccinal antibodies that do not neutralize the virus. 
Because if we have COVID at that point with different, different variants predominant, how could the BA4, BA5 then match those new variants? So we are seeing that this vaccine was never needed in the beginning because we had early drug treatment antivirals. Uh, we knew who the target at-risk group was, elderly high-risk persons. We knew that we, we, we simply needed to, to, to provide focused protection. COVID showed us very early on, by April of 2020, it was amenable to risk stratification and baseline risk predicted severity of outcome death. We knew there was a very steep age risk uh, uh, line that, that risk only went up with age and that we needed a focused protection. Again, back to Great Barrington Declaration. So we, we brought a vaccine though that does not, out of the box, eliminate the virus. Again, Dr. Rochelle Walensky came to the podium around July of 2021 and said that double vaccinated persons, at that point it was Delta, wasn't even infectious Omicron, need to put on masks. We knew then that the vaccine had failed. It failed on Delta and it completely fails on Omicron. It does not protect the upper airways. And um, Van den Bosch, et cetera, is arguing, which, which I, I see a lot of credibility in what he's saying, is that this increased infectiousness that we are seeing in the upper respiratory tract, yet protection in the lower respiratory tract of severe illness, do not take that as a win. And he predicted about a month ago that very soon, we are going to see the same suboptimal immune pressure in the lower respiratory tract, placing pressure on viral virulence and variants are going to overcome that suboptimal immune pressure and the blocking of severe outcomes that we've been seeing would be overcome and we would selection pressure would select for variants that could drive severe illness and we are beginning to get initial reports that people with BA5 are beginning to demonstrate more severe symptoms we are saying still early treatment is the key you need to get in early treatment early, et cetera. You need to follow those protocols, FLCCC, the Zelenko protocol, the McCullough protocol, et cetera. They're out there. That early treatment uh, is the way to go. And this set of vaccines just do not work. And in fact, they are making matters far worse to the population because we run the risk of bringing a variant that is not just infectious, but is also potentially lethal. And we will not know how to cope with that. And I will end by saying that children bring zero risk to the table. Children, the data is very clear and stable, two years now that children are at almost zero risk of severe outcome or death from COVID. So for a vaccine that confers them no benefit, yet brings risk. We know of the myocarditis, it's published, the pericarditis, Guillain-Barre, paralysis. We know of all of the issues, blood clotting, bleeding from these vaccines. Dr. Kostoff, Dr. Tracy Hogg, Hogg um, Jessica Rose, Dr. Jessica Rose, Dr. Peter McCullough, they've written voraciously 
on the risk of my, the harms for myocarditis, pericarditis, bleeding, clotting, etc. We trusted that the pharmaceutical companies did what we thought they must have been doing, which is we thought that they studied children and these studies ran for the proper duration with the proper sample size, looked at the proper number of events, etc. They did not, under no condition that Pfizer and Moderna, FDA has seen no data run from a properly conducted study and have made decisions that they've made decisions on. All of the studies were flawed methodologically. This is, that, this is a fact, and Pfizer or Moderna cannot challenge somebody like me or another evidence-based medicine person and show us that their studies are bona fide, high quality, robust and trustworthy. It's not. You, the vaccine developer, and you, the FDA regulator, are to ensure that they have excluded harms. That statement is a critical statement that people, it's maybe not part of your lexicon, but it should be. The, the clinical trial conductor runs a study for the proper duration of follow-up so that they can exclude harms. They take those results to the regulator to get it approved to bring that product to market. If they have not excluded harms, the regulator can't approve something that is harmful. But in this case, the proper studies for the proper duration, the proper safety testing was never done. And this is what you in the public and I, we found out after the fact, because we thought Pfizer and Moderna did the proper studies. They did not. And all of the mRNA vaccines trials in animals failed prior. That's something that the record is clear on that. When they tried these vaccines in the animal model, post SARS-1, 2003, all of the animals got very, very sick. Liver, kidney toxicity, and many died because of these vaccines, these mRNA vaccines. They've looked at them in coronaviruses before and they all failed. It's a fact. So now we have a situation where you have Pfizer and Moderna bring these suboptimal studies to the regulator, FDA and CDC, and they've approved them. And we are saying, this is now our children here. You don't have the data or the evidence to support the approval. Now people like us are going one step further. We are trying to alarm parents to tell them it is way past defunct or terribly conducted studies. We are trying to tell you that there is an innate immune system in your child that needs proper training as, no, as you, your innate immune system was trained when you were a child. This vaccine will subvert it and damage it, and it will not be trained. And your child will be subject to COVID, a host of other pathogens that could render them very sick and be catastrophic failures for them. And here's the question, why would you take the chance? The academic medical research community, the publishing community should hang their heads in shame and we need proper discussions, proper inquiries as to how they stood back and they did not step up to the plate and, and band together and say, no, this is, this is crazy, especially the evidence-based medicine world. They failed in their, in their role to be the protector and to, to properly inform people. So we argue today that scientific research, EBM, everything is dead. COVID, 
in the era of COVID, these have died because, and there's this core you, in, you included in your own profession and your uh, media, your publishing and your, and your interviews of us. There's a core 10 to 12 of us who have been fighting from the beginning because we are saying, look, we are overwhelmed by the, by the millions of people who are against what we're saying. We're not even getting into the point anymore about why. We're just saying, you know what? We are so deep. We can't go back anymore. We have to continue. So that's why I'm still speaking and I'm still writing. And that's it. Dr. Paul Alexander, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show again. Thank you very much, Sue. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for joining Dr. Paul Alexander and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. The FDA did not immediately respond to a request for comment.